On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to have the brightest conversation in Hamilton podcasting with lots of stuff to talk about with spectator reporter Fallon Hewitt, including a deep dive into what is art. Yes, we're going real, real deep, as well as stories that we've seen in the city this week about a mother with her children or child buying apps out of control, flights to nowhere. Stick around. We got lots and lots of stuff to get into. You'll enjoy it. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There are stories that people write for the paper or for CHML or for CHCH or whatever that get traction and get people talking. You had a piece this week that is the, I think it is the conversation piece of the week unquestionably. And that is this story about the mother in town with a young son who um, they ran into a little bit of a, um, well, a phone spending problem. <laughs> what, why don't you take a few seconds and explain the story for people who may not know this already? Yeah. So um, I had a story about um, a mom and her son and the mom, uh, Natasha, she had given um, her child her old Android phone and he had been playing games on it. And she had thought that the credit card was turned off it turns out it wasn't. And uh, Natasha, by the way, um, she has she lives with a visual impairment, so she is almost blind. So it's, it's difficult for her to monitor what her son is doing on her phone. And uh, it turns out he had ended up spending about $1,300. And so she is sort of calling on a refund from Google and perhaps, you know, extended or better um, measures so that allow that so that kids can't do this um, just to help her out and so on yeah so and so you i mean you wrote this uh it has generated as i say so much discussion i'm sure you've been hearing from people i'm sure you've seen what is going on on social media Where, where are people generally leaning on this one are they feeling very sympathetic to her or are they saying you're the parent you gotta monitor your kid too bad so sad i think it's been a bit of both some people have brought up that uh you know the mom, you know, because it's COVID, there wasn't normal childcare, so maybe he wouldn't be on her phone nearly as much because a lot of these uh, charges have been racked up between, like, there were some just uh, as recently as September, but others in, like, June. And then other people are saying, you know, you know, we put passwords on, like, we take these precautions, uh, you know, this is a live-and-learn situation. It's been a bit of both. <laughs> I've gotten, like, I've only actually gotten, I think, one email about it, which was, like, they weren't supportive of Natasha they were more like oh like this person needs to learn but I haven't looked at the Facebook comments as much um I did see a lot of a lot of what I'm talking about is from Twitter it is I mean it's a really tricky one when you first heard this story and and your your view may have developed or evolved on this one but when you first heard about this what was your sense? Which way did you lean when you first heard about this one? Did you think, man, this is, you know, you, you got to be more on top of this? Or did you think this sounds like something that really is a, something I feel great sympathy towards? I think in Natasha's case, because she does live with a visual impairment, like I can't imagine how difficult it is to maybe like, especially like figuring out if there's a password on a phone and knowing like what exactly is going on. Like her son is also seven, like, uh, she doesn't know if he's going to go click happy on a phone. So I was like, <laughs> I guess it is like a tale of sort of, you know, this is really unfortunate. And it is obviously like everyone can have passwords and so on. But I don't know what it's like to live with a visual impairment. I don't know what accessibility is like on an Android phone. I don't know. Uh, 
how to how one would deal with that. So it's kind of it's tricky because there are ways to avoid this happening, but I don't know if it's particularly set up for someone who uh, lives with visual impairment. <laughs> I, I, my, honestly, my, my first reaction was to think this is, you know, this is, this is a risk you take if you have the phone. But then I have a friend who a number of years ago, their son, who was a teenager went to, I think it was Argentina for a few weeks on a trip and they ended up getting a phone bill when they got home and it was for thousands of dollars. They had no idea that the kid was using the phone while he was down there and calling his friends. Cause I guess he was bored of just like traveling around Argentina and what do you do? I mean, that's the story here is, is that she's trying to get some help from Google to get this money back. Are, is Google doing anything for her or are they saying too bad, so sad? As of yet, um, Natasha said as of Tuesday, I'm going to circle back with her next week that uh, Google hadn't had told her like they weren't going to be able to give her the refund, even though they were being reported within this, uh, what seems to be like the the sort of rules that would cover her if you report like an unauthorized spending uh, within 120 days. But as of yet, they've said no refund, but I don't know if that will change at all. Um, she has, she has her bank. Uh, she told me her bank is also going to be looking into this, but uh, yeah, I've been in that situation where one time I had a Rogers phone and I had gotten some data top ups, but I thought I had turned them off. And then one time I got a bill for like $400 on my phone and it took a little bit of pushing, but I did get rid of it. But I don't know if Google will uh, will do it. It's, it can be tricky with online uh, like online purchases like that really to your phone. Uh, you know, and again, like I, I, we're going to take a quick break here. I started being very unsympathetic, and then as I've thought about it, I, I've I have started to lean the other way and said, you know, th- it, this is not in my mind anyway. When I read the story a second time. This is not so outrageously unbelievable that it could happen to you or me or to someone else. You just said it happened to you in some sense. And, and as I say, I've known someone and, and, you know, reading some of these online comments, boy, I, I'm, I'm wondering if people realize how easy this could be to have something like this happen to you with huge charges. And Fallon, just to, um, to understand just a little more specifically, was this her, phone did you say or was this a, an old or backup phone that she wouldn't have had any way of knowing this was happening while this was going on until she got the bill so natasha said this was uh this was an old phone that uh she no longer really used i think it probably just had the wi-fi connection but uh her son darius would play games on it and she thought she had removed the credit card information it, from it prior but uh, it turns out she hadn't. And then uh, she went to the bank earlier this month to move some money. And the, and the bank uh, teller told her, oh, you're, you're short like $1,200. And she had no idea. So these purchases were, purchases were being made like the whole time. And she had no clue. Yeah, just during the break, I went on to the Specs Facebook page because there are hundreds. This is why I say there. Are, this is the kind of story people love because it, it's so it's such so easy to get a visceral reaction to this. There are hundreds and hundreds of comments about this, and they seem to be that there aren't too many people, Fallon, that are split down the middle on this one. That are like, oh, I'm not really sure. It's either you screwed up and suck it up and pay the bill, you blew it, or these things are just designed for this kind of thing. And how could you possibly have known? I'm, I'm, I'm a little surprised 
with the thought that Google may even contemplate this. And again, I'm not trying to be unsympathetic to her, but you've got a company that says, Hey, we have our business. And you know, if you buy something, I'm sorry, how do we know if you bought it or your kid bought it? I'm, I'm not holding out a great amount of hope, honestly, that Google will, unless your story shames them into it. Should they though? And, And I'm not, again, it's, I'm not asking you, did she make a mess or did she screw up? I don't mean that. I mean, as a business, is it the business's responsibility to sort out whether or not this was an unfortunate situation or was it her responsibility ultimately, do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit split on that because I think, I don't know if, like, again, like Natasha lives with a visual impairment, so I don't know, like, how, like, how accessible it is to put a password on your phone. Like, I don't, I don't have that lived experience, so I don't know how easy it is to navigate that sort of, technical world of making sure everything is wiped off your phone like do you have to make sure like a friend is doing it like I like it's it's a bit tricky because it's like there's a big accessibility question there to make sure everything is off and everything is good and you're protected and you're safe from you know unauthorized spending um I don't know if Google will respond to it I they haven't even well, responded and to my media request so <laughs> I don't know if they'll respond at all but uh, well, Google doesn't have much money, so for them to give a refund would be pretty tough. I mean, I think what's their net worth? Only about a trillion dollars these days. So um, there is that. I mean, how could Google possibly give up that kind of money to give $1,300 back? There, As you said, though, there are other parts to this story that to me make it really interesting because there is this element of, first of all, the child is seven. So not an age where maybe there's a real understanding. And two, you mentioned COVID and now you're a parent, visual impairment or not, you're a parent who is home trying to find things for your kid to do to pass the time. And as as a seven-year-old, I've had a seven-year-old, I've had two seven-year-olds. They don't just sit there quietly all day and do nothing. You you have to find something for them to do. Um, You know, this, like, as I say, I, I, I started this one reading your story thinking, my goodness, I, she blew it. I'm, I'm starting to lean the other way here and think I, I have some sympathy for her now, the, the way this thing played out. Yeah, no, definitely. Like, I hope there's maybe some sort of resolution. Like I, maybe something better comes out of this. That's more helpful to parents. Like, I don't know. I hope there's some sort of response. It would be because like, you know, the accessibility thing to me is like the biggest thing. And also the COVID thing, like keeping the kids distracted or like giving them something to do. Like there's a lot of things that go into, into what happened, but obviously there is a lesson to be learned here about the passwords and making sure that you have everything set up that you can't have this happen again. The only part about this that I really have a, you know, a strong position on, because again, I, I have vacillated on this is, I, now I don't know, you're, you're, you're much younger than me. You are in a different generation than me. So maybe you feel differently about this than I do, but I I look at this and go, I'm the part about this that really I'm not comfortable with is seven-year-olds having smartphones. Are you, are you comfortable with that? Because that's what you grew up with. So that's just normal. Am I just being old or is that, or is there any thought in your mind that seven-year-olds having smartphones is very early? I think having a smartphone itself, like when you're seven is a little bit early. I didn't have a smartphone until I was in grade nine. So I would have been like 14 or 15. But um, like, I didn't have like an iPad until I was much older. I can see why, you know, kids would have iPads in which they can play like free games and stuff. But having like an actual 
like phone with a dis- like with a number and everything. I don't know if a seven year old needs a needs a smartphone, but I could see the the benefit in like them having like an iPad with like games and maybe like reading apps and like stuff that they can like learn with. But I don't know about a cell phone. Like to me, it's every time I see kids that have like a better iPhone than me, I get really confused because they're like <laughs> ten years younger than me, and I'm like, why do you have a why is your iPhone nicer than mine? <laughs> like, I'm a working adult. <laughs> Well, and you know, we just, we talked earlier uh, this week on the show about that movie on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it yet. The social, what's it called now? The social um, dilemma, the social dilemma, which is about smartphones and about modern technology. And maybe that's what's freaked me out a little bit about this too, about how phones, the the impact phones have on us. But yeah, this is, uh, if you haven't read this one already, Go read it. You can see it at thespec.com. It's written by Fallon Hewitt. Uh, you will, when you're done reading it, have, I'm sure, an opinion one way or the other. Everybody else has. Everybody else has had an opinion on it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A few weeks ago, we had a study out from McMaster University. And it was a little controversial. Not everybody in the medical in the medical realm agreed with it. But the study essentially said... Children, young students, especially elementary, middle school students, are not going to be super spreaders of COVID. In schools, where you're going to have issues is with older kids and adults, teachers, staff. And so I'm now reading, so we've got that warning. And I'm now reading a story that is a number of school boards, I think three of them right now in Ontario, have got rules in place that are allowing their teachers to not wear masks when the teachers are with each other, not around the kids, but when the teachers are just by themselves, these school boards are saying, Hey, teachers, you don't have to wear the masks. Just try and keep a little bit of distance. And I want to bring Fallon Hewitt back in reporter with the Hamilton spectator. Who's joining us this evening. And Fallon, we, we have, whether you agree with the medical research or not, we have legitimate, credible medical research from a credible university with a great medical school saying, Look, you're not really so worried about the young, young kids. It's the teachers and the adults who you should be worried about. And then school boards turn around and say, ah, go ahead and take your mask off. How difficult is this? This seems to me like this should not be that difficult to figure out you're around people, wear a mask. How can this possibly be so challenging for some people? I really don't understand like how it could be so challenging. I really thought that the masking order for teachers from school board to school board would be, you know, pretty easy to follow along with, you know, masks are mandated in most uh, counties and municipalities across Ontario and any inside, inside a business, inside public spaces. Like, I don't really understand how a school could be exempt from that when the teachers are around other teachers, especially since adults are usually the people that are going out more outside of families and so on. Like they do the groceries, they do everything, anything in the household, like the most exposure. So it seems bizarre that uh, that's happening. Well, it seems bizarre that it's happening. It seems even more bizarre to me that teachers are actually doing it. I mean, if I go out now and whether or not I think that the masks are lifesavers or not, if I'm out, I'm wearing one because two reasons. One, I don't want people to look at me with that look like you're a giant idiot because you're not doing it. And two, if I did carry something, which I don't think I am, but I don't want to give it to someone else. I, 
but it seems just so obvious. We're at a point now where it just seems like it's second nature. Why would you even feel like you had to take off your mask now? Yeah, no, no kidding. And just like wearing a mask, um, like it's just a sign of just like the more people that wear masks, like, you know, it's just a sign of, you know, it's a general sign of like respect to one another now. Yes. I feel yes. it's just become like, oh, you're wearing a mask, you respect me, like so on and so forth. Like, I don't really. I couldn't comprehend why like anyone would want to take a mask off, especially in a school where there's so many people and so many different social circles, like coming together in one building throughout the entire day. It just seems, uh, just seems crazy to me. Well, and it's enclosed, right? It's enclosed yeah. and, you, and, and droplets could go anywhere. You know, when you say about respect, it's a great point because I heard someone the other day, it's not a perfect analogy, but I heard someone say that word respect with masks. And they said, I'm wearing a mask for the same reason that I bathe before I go to work and don't come to work stinking of BO, right? I may be able to live with my own stink, but the people around me don't deserve to have to smell that. It's not the perfect example, but I think it's a pretty visceral example of the kind of reason why you wear a mask. It's not necessarily about you. It's about the people around you who have to suffer if you don't. Yeah, because also this is another thing is that, you know, you could be just having like mild symptoms. You could think they're like allergies or something. And then imagine you get someone else sick and like they end up getting like horribly ill. And, you know, because COVID like shows itself differently in people all the time. Like the symptoms have evolved throughout this entire pandemic. You know, people get more sick than their neighbor. Like it really isn't a, you know, that person doesn't look sick. They're probably fine. Like it's really, you can't, there's no, um, there's no real like threshold to being like, oh, I'm fine. I can just do this. Like I don't, I, I couldn't live with myself if I went out and just had like a sniffling nose, took my mask off and then like knowingly someone got very ill because of my decision to just not wear a piece of fabric. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, Fallon, we, how, how long was the debate going on? And I don't even think it's a debate, the argument going on about kids going back to school and class sizes and everything else. And the whole debate was, we are terrified that the schools are going to become a giant Petri dish of this. Well, if that's what the entire discussion has been for months and the teachers are worried that this is going to be dangerous, why would the teachers then take off their masks and allow it to possibly be dangerous? It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I can't even comprehend, like, after all these conversations and so many families coming out to the media and saying, like, I can't send my kids back to school because, like, they are medically compromised. Like, people in our houses are medically compromised. And the people that do send their kids to school are taking, they know they're taking a big risk. Like, I've seen many parents on social media say, you know, dropping off their kids at school makes them very weepy because they're very scared. And, and teachers I spoke to were also very scared about the risk when I was doing some reporting on education earlier this, like late this summer, I just can't imagine how it went from, you know, this is very terrifying to some people being like, Oh, I'm just going to take my mask off and go about my, <laughs> my day. Talent, by the way, are you a traveler? Do you like to travel? Have you done a lot of traveling? I actually haven't done a lot of traveling at all. <laughs> um, like my favorite thing to tell people is that I have never left North America because I just haven't really never, I've never really had a time to travel. I've, I've moved around. Um, like before I moved to the Hamilton Spectator, I lived out in St. John, New Brunswick, and I grew up in, a little bit in Nova Scotia as well, but, uh, really haven't done that much traveling. I've been in New York, Chicago, Cleveland, Montreal, but 
nothing too crazy. <laughs> is it something? Is it something that appeals to you, or is it something that's just? Is it just something that appeals to you, but you haven't had time, or just not really something that is high on the list? No, it's definitely something that appeals to me. I just I haven't really had time. I kind of went from uh, high school right into college and university, and then I went right into my field, so as so to speak. So I haven't really had a lot of time to do much traveling, and now with COVID, I don't really know when it will happen, but. I'll just continue to keep saving for a ticket on an airplane one day. <laughs> well, that is a perfect segue into what I wanted to ask you about and why I'm raising this. Because we obviously can't fly many places in the world. They don't want planes coming in and going out from a lot of spots. But people are getting the travel itch, it seems, to the point that Qantas, the Australian airline, has now booked a seven-hour flight to nowhere. You will take off out of Sydney. You will fly around in a plane, a wide body or a, what is it? Is it yeah, uh, like one of their huge, one of their huge planes that usually is used for international flights for seven hours. You'll fly around and then you'll land in Sydney again. And it's going for between 575 and $2,765, $2,765. And it's sold out in 10 minutes. This is how desperate apparently people are. You've not done a lot of traveling. Would you want to go on a flight to nowhere just to take off and land again? I think if I knew it was like safe to go on it, I have, like that would be kind of fun. I've only actually flown commercially like three times in my whole life. So that would actually be kind of fun, you know, just to do something. I think everyone is itching to, you know, just have experiences that are safe and okay, even if uh, it can't be the full deal. I could see why people would totally do it. They to say they even just did it. They're just like I why guess. Not? <laughs> I guess yeah, it's a wide body Boeing 787. Usually there are hundreds of seats. They're only selling 134 seats so that they can spread people out and you're not breathing on each other and all the rest. But yeah, I I'm I'm looking going, okay, I've never well, I kind of flew first class one time by accident for a little bit. It's a long story. I don't need to go into it. Um, but I've never really had the first class experience. So maybe, you know, you just go, oh, this is my chance to to do it. But almost $3,000 just to get into a plane and fly around. Boy, you must be really desperate for some travel adventure or something to do that, to go nowhere, just up and down again. Yeah, no kidding. You like, <laughs> I can hardly, I can hardly convince myself to buy tickets like plane tickets home from New Brunswick to fly to Ontario. So those, anyone that bought those seats must, uh, must have the money to do so. I guess, but wouldn't the people, wouldn't you think the people who have the money and have the interest, wouldn't you think they've done some flying before? So it's not really that big a deal. I mean, I, I could see spending the money to do a, um, you know, a small trip flying through the Grand Canyon or something that you've not done, but it, just to get on a plane, a regular commercial plane, just to go back up in the air. Boy, that, that, that to me is, is really weird, especially Fallon, when, what do we hear from people all the time after they go on a long trip? Oh man, I just, the flight was just, yeah, I hated the flight. I mean, I was crammed in and blah, blah. Like whoever says they loved the flying part of the trip they went on. Once upon a time, maybe now we all just complain about it. Yeah, I think most people do. I was going to say also, like, um, maybe I just lost my train of thought, but uh, I don't know. Maybe people would go on it just to say they did it. Like, maybe people are really big into, like, Instagram and social media, and they're like, oh, I went on the flight to nowhere, and it's a whole little thing for their social media account. Like, who knows what really motivates people to spend that much money on a, a flight uh, to nowhere, but... 
I can yeah. see the hashtag now. Well, yeah, I mean, who knows what, uh, I don't want to let my mind wander too far to wonder what they might want to do on the plane, <laughs> that this would be their opportunity to, you know, stretch out or, you know, whatever, let your imagination run wild, all you people listening. I mean, who knows what they may want to, but it just, boy, oh boy, we have we reached, maybe we have reached these kind of desperate times that you will spend almost $3,000 just to get on a plane, sit in the first class seat, especially Fallon. Here's the thing. I'm guessing that, again, people who have this much money probably have at least one comfortable chair at home that they could sit in for seven mm-hmm. hours and drink a beer if they wanted to, or even a glass of champagne and save $3,000. Oh, 100%. <laughs> they definitely yeah, that, have that. <laughs> that that's, that's what I've always thought is hilarious about people who rave about fancy hotels because they say, oh man, it had a beautiful sink. And then you say, well... Was it much different in the bathroom from your bathroom at home? Well, no, but it was like, well, then why are you spending all this money on a hotel room? Just, you know, you get that at home. Anyway. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, have you heard about this show on Netflix called Cuties? Have you heard any of the controversy about it? I've like read just like some of the controversy, just a little bit, like nothing too crazy. I haven't watched it or anything, but I've seen some of the stuff. I haven't read that much about it. I feel bad that I'm like I don't totally have like a solid uh, grasp on everything that's been going on on it. Well here's the general story about it and some people may have seen it some people may have read about it it's a it's a documentary not documentary it's not a documentary it's a um, like a biopic it's a it's a story about a girl um, who an 11 year old girl who has a Muslim background who sees a bunch of um, other girls who are not Muslim, who are in a dance group. And she becomes fascinated with this and joins them. The, the, the dancing though, um, is exceedingly adult. Um, really, I think most people would say not what you would expect or want 11 year old girls doing there. They are, they are doing things that even some grown women would be uncomfortable doing. And the reason this has become such a controversy, A, is because of that, and B, because it portrays these girls very clearly dancing like this and moving like this. But the the question, and here's the, the, the interesting part, Fallon, is the director of this says, well, we are showing, it's, it's a warning against the exploitation of girls, of young girls as sex objects. But the critics are saying, yeah, but you're exploiting them to make your case. This is an interesting question about art. Can you use, can you, can you exploit people to warn against the exploitation of people? Can that work? I don't believe so. I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> like not to, not to me at least. I Like, I don't think that would be the way it would work. <laughs> what about the idea of art? Like we, we hear all the time about art shocking people, that art is supposed to make you think. And so sometimes art will shock you and you'll go, man, I don't feel comfortable with that. I think some art is obviously shocking for good reason, but I think it all depends on context and everything. Like there's so many, there's so many factors like, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I wish I knew more about cuties to like say more and be more eloquent about it. But like, I think art can be shocking and it's important for art because that's part of its role. But sometimes, you know, in right now, maybe certain things aren't good to do. And 
Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I'm, I, I've been trying to think about this. I, I watched a little bit of it, to be honest, because I, I had heard about this and I thought, you know what, if I'm going to talk about it on the radio. I'm going to watch it. I watched about half an hour and then I got uncomfortable watching it. Uh, it like it kind of creeped me out. And so I said, OK, I've got the idea here. I don't need to be spending any more time with this. It didn't make me comfortable. But as you say, there are a lot of different artists who over the years have done things that have flown into the face of the accepted public mores and morals because they say, look, we are making a point here and we're showing something. And I, I'm trying to, for me, whether it's this particular movie or not, I'm trying to figure out where the line is. And I don't know if there is a line, but where's the line when you say, you know what, art is good when it shocks us or art is bad when it shocks us. Like, are you okay if you, if someone does something that flies in the face of your beliefs or your philosophy or your whatever, if it's art and they're trying to make you think, are you okay with that? I would be okay with it as long as it's not exploitative. (laughs) Like I think exploitation is like a next level thing. Like, but I'm more than open to other opinions to seeing other sides of things. I think it's important. Um, And especially through art. Um, but yeah, as long as it's not exploitative and, you know, educational, but like, but actually educational, like, I think that would be the balance. Here, let me throw a really deep philosophical question for 7.15 PM on a Friday night to you. <laughs> so you're, you know, just what would, where would, what do you describe art as? Can art literally be anything? Some people say art can be anything almost. I don't know if art can be anything. I think art to me like has to have some sort of meaning or message, but I guess everything has a message, but I think there, yeah, that, that is a really deep question, but I do think like, I don't think everything can be, I don't think everything is art, but, uh, or anything can be art, but there is like tons of things that are art. I don't know. That is a really deep question. Well, I mean, there, look, there, we, there is a, um, I can't remember where it is now. There's a museum or an art gallery somewhere. And I saw this picture one time. Somebody out there listening will know where this is. And they have a piece of art. What it is, it's a boulder. It is just simply a giant boulder that they took out of the country somewhere and brought it into the museum and said, look, this is art. And people, some people say, no, it's just a rock that you took. But they say, no, but when we place it here in this particular environment, at this particular angle, with this particular lighting it becomes art. And I, I'm Fallon, I'm one of those. And maybe I'm just a Philistine who doesn't quite get it, but I look at a bunch of the stuff that we call art or that some people call art these days. And I go, that's not art, a pile of coins thrown onto the floor in the middle of an art gallery. You can call it art. To me, that's a pile of coins thrown onto the floor that, and, and the reason I bring all this up is because we can defend almost anything if we give it the title of art and say art is allowed to be art and you can't d- criticize it because it's just my interpretation. Yeah. And art is also totally like subjective to whoever's looking at it. So of course, always about perspective. I was going to say, I remember at the AGO a couple of years ago, I don't know if it's still there. They had this like giant hamburger that someone had made and <laughs> it was just like on display. And to me, I was like, Oh, that's like cool looking, but like, I don't think I ever read like the little descriptor beside it, but like to me, I'd be like, Oh, it's a giant hamburger. It almost looks like it could just be outside of a restaurant promoting a burger, but like to other people it's art, like it's a whole different thing. 
Some people will remember, some people listening will remember this may be, uh, you may not remember this one, but there's a piece that I believe the National Gallery of Canada owns, and I can't remember the name of it, and it is just, it is a huge canvas that has, I think, just either two, it's in three rectangles on the canvas, and two of them are just red, and it looks like a, a flag almost, and and I've seen other ones where it's just a piece of white, uh, a, a piece of canvas painted solid white, and the artist again says, Hey, it's, it's art. There's deep meaning behind this. And, you know, we can, we can sit here and have a debate all day about whether it's art or whether it's just somebody yanking our chain and separating us from our money to buy this modern thing. But if you, if, if anything is art, as you say, and it's very subjective and it's not proper to criticize art because again, it's subjective and what I may think of art is not what you well, then you could pretty much do anything in the name of art and be excluded from criticism. Yeah. Could you not? Yeah, that is true. Like, I'm trying to think of, like, basic things that I did, like, in arts, in, like, art class in high school. Like, I, we had to make pottery and I made this, like, weird pottery Loch Ness monster. I don't think I would call it art, but maybe someone else would. Like, <laughs> it's just, like, so bizarre. <laughs> Okay, but you you shaped it into something. So there was some yeah. there was some effort on your part to turn it into something. What if you had simply taken the piece of clay, the lump of clay that your teacher had given you, and you rolled it into a ball and just went thwamp and threw it on the table and said, "There, art." Is it? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know what kind of grade you would have got from your art teacher. Yeah, I don't is... think my art teacher would have been very pleased. <laughs> No, but it's, but that's, that's what we're talking about here. And I, and you know, a, a lump of clay thrown onto a desk and this movie, I know some people are saying, wait a second, they have no similarity. Well, they don't accept that calling something art in my mind should not defend against criticism. If it is inappropriate or if it is exploitive or if it is uh, highly offensive. I don't, I don't believe that simply saying, well, it's art. So it's above that kind of criticism. I don't, I don't believe that should be the the case. I don't believe that should give you a blanket immunity against any kind of criticism that what you've done is offensive. Oh yeah, definitely. Like I think like freedom of opinion is important, especially in those cases. Like if you're going to be an artist or create something, you should be able to also like expect that not everyone will totally agree with it or love it is when we said at the top that the idea of some art is to shock or to offend um do you agree with that are, are you do you think some should be offensive or some should be shocking in general i think well the shocking and offensive part i don't even know if it really falls on the artist i think it falls on the person looking at it so i think like everyone will do like people will do stuff and there'll always be people I think that are shocked or offended or offended. Like, I don't know if, uh, if there's any way to say that you, like, you can't do that. I, like, I guess it, there'll always be people that will feel that way. So I, no, I, I look at the argument. It, it is, it is very tricky. It's very difficult because again, we've created, I think in a lot of ways, we've created this scenario where we say, as long as you call it art, it is above reproach and you can do it and nobody should really be criticizing. Um, my other knock on this one is that we do seem to pick and choose who and where we want to offend. And there are some groups that we would never think of offending and nor should we, 
quite honestly. But you know what? If you wanted, if you want to be, if you're an artist and you really want to shock and offend, I tell you what, um, I'm sure people can give you some ideas of people and people groups that you could do something to. It probably wouldn't end well for you, but you could offend and you could call it art and you could see if that would defend you against that argument. I don't know. Anyway, it is uh, Voice of Fire, by the way. We all just whispered in my ear was that piece at the National Gallery that I think Canada, the Canadian government spent like $15 million and it was, it looked like it was painted with two paint rollers and just, you know, you or I, Fallon, could have done it in about five minutes and uh, pocketed 15 million bucks and away we go. I, I, I think maybe we've missed the car calling. We should have just been artists, <laughs> abstract artists, and we would be very, 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 very well off. Um, just before I let you go, we got just a couple of minutes left here. You wrote one other piece today that I wanted to ask you about because I think this is probably everyone's nightmare about uh, somewhere in Hamilton. Is it a townhouse complex or an apartment building? Where oh, there is now a, a snake loose. Yes, a little ball python. Not little, but it's probably the same size as myself because I'm only about five feet tall and it's apparently four to five feet long. So, but yeah. That's it's, lovely. Uh, That's it's lovely. missing in a townhome complex in the city's east end. That is, uh, uh, is that not almost everybody's worst nightmare that you live <laughs> in that townhouse complex and they send you a little note saying, oh, by the way, there's a four to five foot long snake loose in the building, but have a nice night. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I know I would be honestly petrified. Like I would definitely just go stay at a friend's until that whole situation <laughs> was rectified. Like, you know, those times where people talk about how they lift up the toilet and there's a snake in there. Like I just couldn't imagine, like I would be not excited at all. <laughs> uh, yes. We talked on the show this week about in uh, Peru, I believe it was that exact situation, Fallon. Now it wasn't five feet long, the snake, but a guy sat down to do his business and there was a snake in the bowl and it chomped onto it. <laughs> and I don't need to go into more details. This, this, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm lying in bed in my East Hamilton townhouse and suddenly I feel something sliding by my arm in the bed. Like, I, I, this is nightmare stuff. This, yeah. Whose snake is this? I, it must have been the tenant that lived there before and they left it when they got evicted. I don't even know. Like, <laughs> I, there's so many questions about how the snake ended up there. And it also, it could go after a small animal. I have a cat. Like, that would be my worst nightmare if I, you know, was living in that townhome complex. And as I woke up and my little cat was getting strangled with a snake. Like, I would, oh my God, I'd be beside myself and I'd, I don't even know what I would do. Fluffy, where are you, Fluffy? Yeah, no, that, that would not... <laughs> um... Yeah, if you are living in East Hamilton, now I won't even say where this place is. You can read it again at thespec.com. But um, yeah, this is, uh, you may you may want to not sleep for the next little while and just, uh, I don't know, do snakes go to the light or do they go into darkness? Do you turn out all the lights or turn off all your, or turn on all your lights to, to try and keep it out of your room? I don't know. I have I'm not a not snake a expert. Uh, neither am I. I don't know if I ever want to be. I feel like they like heat, but I really don't know. <laughs> You're probably right. So keep your townhouse, turn the air conditioning on, even in winter, make it freezing cold, open the freezer and fridge door. And what a, um, like snakes on a plane was just a horrendous movie because of the idea of a bunch of snakes getting loose in the plane. This is almost as bad snakes in your own house, slithering free. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, no, thank you. This is, this is why we do not have snakes in this house. We got dogs. We don't have snakes in the house. 
Fallon Hewitt, really appreciate you taking some time to do this today. You were great. Really, uh, thanks for taking your Friday evening to spend it with us. Awesome. Thanks for inviting me, Scott. I really appreciate it. Want to hear more? Download the podcast on iTunes or Google Play and listen to The Scott Radley Show weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.